Hey, Obsassinacs, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, we're going to be discussing Season 3, Episode 10, Heaven and Earth. But before we get into that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many, many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to Facebook and Instagram to follow the Sassnack Files for all of the latest and greatest news for Season 6 of Outlander, Book 9 of the Outlander series, Go Tell the Beast That I'm Gone, and any little projects that our favorite actors have in store for us in the future. Also, going on on social media right now, we are currently making our way through our bracket contest for the best episode of season five. So if you have not had a chance to cast your vote yet, make sure to head over there and make your voice heard. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of 310 Heaven and Earth. So for simplicity's sake, this episode, I am going to divide and conquer. We're going to do Jamie's storyline and Claire's storyline separately, which I loathe to go back to that because that's how we spent the first half of season three. But, oh God, you know, season three, they just love to separate Jamie and Claire over and over again. So we're going to make do. We're going to get through this. So... First up, we'll talk about Crazy Jamie, as the fandom lovingly refers to Jamie in this episode. I do kind of get the feeling that he wasn't well-written in this episode, like wasn't well-adapted. I think that the writer might have been kind of disconnected from this character, but also I can completely see how he lost his shit because, lest we forget, we did spend the first half of season three covering 20 years where they were separated, and it's kind of his worst fear to go through that all again. So I do understand, believe it or not, whether Jamie would have in fact lost his cool like that, we'll never know because the books did not cover things from his perspective at this juncture. It is kind of interesting though. They used it as a plot device in a lot of ways because it did open up all of these fantastic conversations between Jamie and Fergus, and we kind of get a better idea of what their relationship looks like. So I I did like that portion of this episode, just simply for that reason. Honestly, it was kind of um, 180 because we got Fergus as the voice of reason and the calming influence in this situation. He's like, you know nothing's going to happen to her. She can't, you told me she can't get that disease. And Jamie's like, well, there's more than plague upon that ship, lad. There's 300 men. The one thing that we see with Fergus and Jamie that I did find extremely interesting is throughout the whole last episode, the doldrums and this episode, all Fergus wants from Jamie is his approval. Like that's all he wants in life. And I find it extremely sad that he can't get it. It's, it just breaks my heart because, you know, Jamie raised Fergus. He knows the kind of man he is. And I think that that's kind of a double-edged sword in this situation because Marsley is Jamie's daughter. And I think if it were any other person, any other girl that Fergus would come to Jamie and be like, hey, I want to be married. Jamie would be like, yeah, sure. You're great. Like hundred percent. I'll support you. 
But it's the fact that Fergus is wanting to be with Marsily that has Jamie drawing up short because Jamie knows about all of Fergus's exploits. He knows that he's not a guy that's all about commitment. And now all of a sudden, Fergus wants Jamie's approval to basically give him his daughter, who he cares deeply about, to be married to. And so I think that would be really hard for anybody to swallow. And Jamie takes his commitment as a stepfather very seriously. He loves Marceline and Joan like his own kids. And he loves Fergus. So I'm sure it's not an easy spot for him to be in. But I think this episode goes a long way towards proving that Fergus really is in the right frame of mind. And the bribery that Jamie offers him really struck me as kind of like, I could see how it would be tempting. And it's very ironic because Jamie's like, you know, until you would move heaven and earth, risk arrest and death to save the one you love, you can't speak of love. Like, you obviously don't know what it is if you're not willing to go to the ends of the earth for them. It really, I think, gets Fergus thinking because then Jamie steps into the whole bribery of it. He was like, there's this whole idea of heaven and earth and what we consider heaven and earth in this episode, which is why it's titled that. What lengths would you be willing to go to to save the one that you love? And every character, every main character, should I say, in this episode has that question presented to them at some point. For Jamie, it's what lengths is he willing to go to to save Claire? And it's he's willing to push Fergus over the edge, risk potentially his daughter's happiness to save Claire because he bribes Fergus and says, look, I will give the approval for you to marry Marsley if you will steal the keys from the captain commit mutiny and break me out of this joint so we can go save Claire. That's Jamie's, like, he's made up his mind. That's what he's willing to do. There are no lines he's not willing to cross to rescue Claire. Fergus, on the other hand, is like, what the fuck? I am not committing mutiny. Like, there's no way, no way, Jamie, that we are going to win this situation. It literally does not make any sense for me to do this. Trust me, Fergus wants his approval so bad, he would do anything for it. And I think we see that in this episode. But then Fergus is also realizing that maybe it's not so much winning his approval, Jamie's approval, as much as saving him from himself. So in a lot of ways, that's Fergus's revelation throughout this. Obviously, he knows he loves Marsley, and that is one side of the coin, but the complete other side of the coin is that he's saving Jamie from himself. And if he were to enable Jamie in this moment, Lord knows what would happen because Fergus is right. The whole crew is not going to turn to Jamie's favor. They don't know Jamie. They're not going to be willing to follow him into hell. They know Captain Reigns. They know that he's going to do whatever he can to keep him safe. They have a commitment to that captain And he hasn't done anything worth committing mutiny over. So it's super interesting to be sure. And so I think that that is probably the most interesting storyline for me of this episode is Fergus's conundrum. And I think Cesar Domboy did a great job with it. And so by the end of the storyline, Jamie's side of things, we see that Fergus is finally willing to stand up to Jamie 
it takes Fergus going actually as far as going to the captain's quarters to look for the keys. And he overhears them talking about how, well, if Fergus wasn't around, they'd take a taste of his lassie for themselves. And that kind of, I think, clears any reservations that Fergus had about this whole situation because Marzali was right in their conversation that, look, if you do this, if you help him and you fail, they're going to throw you both overboard and I'm going to be here left by myself with no one to protect me. And that's not a place that I want to be. It kind of irks me a little bit that he didn't bother to listen to her. It was that he had to be shown that by someone else that she was in fact right in how she was feeling. That those men would not wait five seconds after throwing Jamie and Fergus overboard to take her for themselves. So when he overhears them talking about this in the captain's quarters, he throws his hands up and he's like, you know what? No level of approval is worth this because, okay, yeah, Jamie might give his approval as we're standing on the planks about to be pushed overboard, but what the hell good does that do? Because I'm not going to be able to be with Marsley anyway. The only thing that Fergus could do in this moment was keep both of the people he loves safe and not steal the keys, mind his own business. Jamie would be safe locked up. Marsley would be safe with Fergus still on the ship. And yeah, Jamie may hate Fergus for it, and he may never be able to marry Marsley, but at least they're both safe. So whenever we get to the last scene when Fergus is like, you know what, I didn't steal the keys. He's like, what in the name of holy God do you mean? Like, Jamie's pissed, but I think Fergus expects it. And I love that the last line that he says is, perhaps I love too much. Because Fergus knows why he did what he did. Jamie may be too blinded by fear to see it. And I think that's why Marsley coming into the picture helps him a little bit because Marsley talks Reigns into letting Jamie go. He says, just ask him to give you his word. If he gives you his word, he'll never break it. And Jamie's like, what are you doing, lass? And she says, just give him your word and he'll let you out of here. I think... What clears Jamie's head a little bit is when Marsley says, you can't see what he's done for you, can you? And he thinks she's talking about Reigns. And she said, no, Fergus. And he said, oh, what Fergus did, he did for you, not for me. And she looks at him and says, if you truly believe that, you don't deserve to be let out of here. And she's right. Fergus Like, Fergus loves Marsley, but what he did was really for Jamie. He didn't have... He could have tried and failed and to help Jamie, and up until this point, he probably would have. But now he has something bigger than himself to fight for, to think about. He has Marsley. I don't know. I mean, it's it's definitely interesting that this is kind of what clears Jamie's head, and he's like, oh, you know, maybe she's right, because... I would have gone and got myself killed and Fergus kind of saved me from myself. And so when Jamie gets set free and he comes out, he's like, you can have my blessing. And so in the end, by doing what he thought was right, Fergus got Jamie's blessing anyway. And I really love that, that he stood up for what he believed in. He did what he thought was right. And in the end, it was the right call to trust his gut. I just, that gave me all the warm and fuzzies. And I love the the irony of this entire episode is that after Jamie's set free, like he's all of a sudden cured of his seasickness. 
<laughs> he just walks out. He's got his hair done. And he's like all like kind of sheepish grin. He's like, well, thanks. But he's not sick anymore. And I'm just like, oh, okay. So this is how this is going. <laughs> Maybe it's deeper than that. And they were trying to use Jamie's seasickness as symbolism or something. I don't know. I just did find that pretty ironic that it's just gone. It's all sunshine and roses now and everybody's on good terms. Now let's go get Claire back, you know. It's funny. But that pretty much brings Jamie and Fergus and Marcelli's story to a close. And then we're going to head over and talk about everything that Claire dealt with during this episode, which is a lot. At the end of the doldrums, when she goes onto that ship, I just, every time I see that episode with everybody puking their guts up and I just can imagine the smell and it literally makes me want to vomit just thinking about it. So uh, I would have been out of there so fast. This is how I am easily identifiable as not a caregiver. I don't do sick people, um, injured people. I can handle, but sick people, unless it's somebody really close to me, I'm just like, uh, no, there are professionals for that. (laughs) Um, So yes, maybe that makes me selfish, but hey, I know my own limits, okay? She's gone on aboard this plague ship because she knows what's causing their fever. She knows it's typhoid. And that's very interesting because she alone knows how typhoid is spread. It's spread by contaminated food and drink and by hands, so by touch. So most of her battle throughout this episode is her trying to convey her 20th century knowledge to a bunch of men who don't want to hear anything that she has to say, which must just be beyond difficult And I can only imagine her struggle. We see it quite a bit in this episode, especially with Mr. Jones. I love his character, particularly because we can see the evolution of him being like Lady Doctor telling me what to do all the way to the end where he is really like Mistress Fraser and being all jolly with her, telling her about what soldiers will drink, like even mashed up peaches left to ferment in an old boot, which first off, gross. Second off, I find hilarious that he's just like telling her all of these stories. But we really do see kind of the struggle. There are a lot of new characters that we only get for this one episode, particularly Cosworth the cook, which I think just represents the entire epitome of the struggle that women had to be viewed of anyone with value in the 18th century. And he just is very suspicious of her because she's a woman and she seems to have knowledge and he immediately jumps to her having some sort of ulterior motive or not being trustworthy because she is a confident woman who doesn't shrink into the background, which I'm sure there were those kinds of men out there. I mean, to be honest, to this day, there are still those kinds of men out there that view an independent and strong woman as a threat. So overall, all of these new characters each bring something to the table. I thought that Claire's battle through typhoid fever was honestly very eye-opening. And also, it was interesting. Granted, this episode is not one of my favorites of season three. In fact, it's one of my least favorites. But there are some kind of hidden jewels in there and that we kind of see 
what Claire was like in the 60s as a surgeon, being in charge of a situation and knowing what to do to help people and being willing to do whatever she had to do. Like she pushes herself beyond the limits of humanity. She's not getting any sleep. She's working 24 seven because she she's literally doing everything that she can do to stop this illness from taking over this ship. And to be consistently told that what she was doing was worthless. She wasn't helping anybody go back to where you came from. That must have been really disheartening, but at the same time, I'm sure that she felt some of that pushback in her chosen field uh, of being a surgeon as well. So she did kind of, whenever Cosworth approached her when it was dark on deck and she was just kind of like taking a breather and he's like, what are you doing? Washing our hands and boiling water. And she did kind of stand up straighter and just plant her feet. And she was like, come at me, bro. You know, (laughs) so that kind of really gave us a nice view into professional Claire, like who she is. Obviously, we know by this point that Claire is stubborn and she's fiery and she fights for what she believes in. But this was a different Claire. She didn't argue. She really kept her mouth shut. She just stood there confident in what she was standing for. It, it was a nice change of pace. I really did. I dug it. In the end, obviously, it ends up working because Claire, in fact, does know what she's talking about. <laughs> of course, along the way, we meet quite a few new characters. Elias Pound is probably one of my favorite characters in the back half of season three. He's a 14-year-old boy who's been in the Navy since he was seven. He's basically an orphan. The only close family that he has is his uncle, who is also in the Navy but on a different ship, on Triton, which is normally the ship that Elias is on, but he took a berth on the porpoise just for this journey. And it ends up being uh, the cause of his death, which I find very tragic. Honestly, Claire is kind of drawn to Elias, and I think she's she has a tendency to pull him under her wing and be mother hen to him. And we kind of see that quite a few times in this episode, mainly when he comes into the galley and he's clearly very tired and hasn't had much sleep. And she's like, you know, you can sit down. It's okay. Elias is such a sweetie and he's such a brave young boy. And for him to have an officer's standing on a ship as a 14 year old and have command over men two and three times his age really is quite impressive. And there's this one particular scene, the funeral scene, where they're putting the 11 bodies overboard after they've um, wrapped them in their hammocks and everything, where Claire is looking around at all the men and she's watching particularly Elias and Captain Leonard. And really helped me to process just how young these boys are. I think Captain Leonard is like 18 or 19 and Elias is 14. So they're really quite young and they've been put in these places of authority. And for them to stand up straight and take charge of the situation and help her, it really is miraculous. And I'm sure there were these types of situations. Um, In fact, I can think of a few situations just in American history where someone much too young has been forced to grow up real quick and take charge of the situation. So to put faces to that and and watch their struggle over the course of an episode 
it really touched me this time. That look on Katrina's face when she's looking at Elias crying because his friend has died. But then for him to turn around and literally like the next scene, have the mask back on and they're talking about compartmentalizing. And he's asking her, how do you do it? And she says, well, there's a word for it, actually. It's called compartmentalizing. And she says, it's just something you have to learn to do. Because if you grieved over every person you lost, you would never save anyone. And then she also looks at him and says, but it is a little different because Jim Quigley wasn't my friend. And then um, Elias is like, well, I think I see what you're saying. So... Just because she can compartmentalize her worries and fears in her loss doesn't mean that he's weak for showing his emotion because it's a completely different set of circumstances. She doesn't know any of these men that she's losing, and he does. It was a very good conversation, I thought. So you have Elias who ends up dying after all the effort and um, all the help he gives Claire. It's really sad. Some people say that this is one of the saddest deaths in the series. And to be honest, like this is going to sound terrible, but I always forget about it until I'm watching season three, because it's literally a one episode arc. So in the grand scheme of things, like he doesn't have that much of an impact on the plot. But I do get what they're saying as far as it is tragic. He did die before his time. It was an awful set of circumstances that Claire became close to this young teenager and couldn't save him despite all the men that she did save but at the same time like compared to some of these huge story arcs multiple season characters that we end up losing it just doesn't really strike me in the same way so you have Elias Pound on one end and then you've got the other young man that I was talking about that has been put in a position of power which is Captain Leonard I feel kind of of two minds about this character because I do really sympathize with him. I mean, four people in charge died before he got thrown into the mix. He wasn't at all ready to be a captain of a ship in charge of 300 men and try to come up with a plan to make these men survive. I mean, they're close to running out of drinking water. They have a ship full of disease that they have no idea how to stop. So, of course, pressing Claire into service, which he's well within his rights to do, is probably the only logical way for his men to survive. I understand why he did what he did, and I don't hold anything against him for it. Where the line starts to blur is when he knows who Jamie is and that he has an arrest warrant out and he refuses to look the other way and even takes it a step further And is planning on using Claire as bait to lure Jamie in. After everything that Claire did for him, I just, like, it's a very black and white way of seeing the world. But a part of me does wonder if he's seeing the world in black and white or if he's using the situation to his advantage. Because from what other characters are telling Claire and by extension telling us is that he's ambitious And he doesn't really care about what's right and what's wrong. It's what's going to get him a step ahead of everybody else. Not quite sure that I can support that line of thinking. And honestly, I'm kind of with Claire. She literally risked life and death and did everything she could to save his crew. And this is how he's returning the favor. Like, 
he didn't even stop to listen to her, like, or he would understand that Jamie didn't do half of what he's accused of anyway. Um, now, granted, could she really turn herself in? No, that that would be idiocy. But it's just kind of a tough situation because honestly, if I were put in that situation, I think I would have looked the other way. But then again, I know Jamie and Claire based on three seasons worth of story. Captain Leonard doesn't. Jamie could be a serial killer for all he knows. So to just up and decide to let Jamie go based on what his wife has done is a bit iffy. Like I do, I do get it, believe it or not. So it's tough and it's easy to see Captain Leonard as a villain because of his decisions. But also if you take a step back and you look at it from the completely objective third party angle, you can see why he made the decisions that he made. And they're probably not all completely selfish. The other thing that kind of complicates the whole story a bit more is Harry Tompkins, which ties into Captain Leonard. And so even though Claire has removed him, I find it extremely ironic that Captain Leonard still has so much trust in her, given that she knows Harry Tompkins is the one that gave him Jamie's name. She threw him in the brig. Like, she's doing all of these things, and yet Captain Leonard still trusts her somewhat. He's just, at this point, going to measures to make sure that she doesn't escape and warn Jamie. But other than that, he's willing to look the other way on her particular discretions, which is interesting. But I also found it extremely puzzling that Claire was willing to threaten Harry Tompkins within an inch of his life because he turned over Jamie. Like, this is one thing where, okay, so there's a lot of talk about Jamie not being well-written, but here is another place where Claire might not particularly be well-written because I don't see her being that type of person either. It's an interesting conundrum, but also you can see in this particular instance and the instance at the very end of this episode where this is Claire's heaven and earth. This is the links that she would be willing to go to to save the one that she loves. She's threatening a man to get information with with a knife, like literally threatening to kill him. Whether she actually would have done it or not, I don't know because she was pretty shaky in her resolve. But she did jump off of a huge like three or four story tall ship into the ocean in the dead of night which is pretty impressive. Like, I I don't think I would have personally been able to push myself to do that. Um, that's, that's insane. But it is interesting that this is, this is the links that she was willing to go to. At the end of the day, it all works out. At, by the end of next episode, we're all happy and together again, which is great. But it does kind of get one's mind going, wondering, okay, so if all of these characters were willing to risk all of this for the ones that they loved, what would I be willing to do, you know? So it's very, um, it's very cool, very, uh, enlightening. Self-exploration all over in this episode. (laughs) Um, so short episode this week because I didn't really think there was too awful much to talk about, but I did want to touch on these things. Quote of the episode this week was 
Fergus's line that says, you asked me if I would move heaven and earth for the woman I love, and I will, even if it means I cannot marry her. If you needed any any confirmation of how much Jamie has worn off on Fergus, there's your answer. Because even though he's not his biological son, Fergus idolized Jamie and looked up to him as a father and... Jamie had a massive impact on who Fergus turned into, like who the man that he became. And that is one thing that I absolutely love about this series is the whole question of what is family and um, having biological versus adoptive children like Jamie and Claire create a family around them and not all of their children are biological children, but that doesn't seem to matter much to them. And I absolutely love that about this series, that uh, a family is what you make it to be. I love that. I really adore that quote. And then um, performance of the episode, I really felt was Katrina Balfe. I know I don't give her the credit that she deserves a lot of the time. I mean, obviously, I think she's amazing, but she doesn't get my performance of the episode very often. But I really did feel like she did a fantastic job this time around. She had a lot of tough scenes, a lot of tough material. Claire's storyline, to me, is kind of fascinating in this episode to see what she goes through and how she handles it, all the new characters that she meets. And at the end, how far she is willing to push herself to do what needs done. And I really admire that about Claire's character. It's one of the reasons that I come back to this series over and over again. And I think that if, (laughs) yes, Katrina doesn't look anything like how Claire is described in the books, but she embodies Claire for me. And that's what I appreciate so much about her performance. So that is that. This week, once again, I dropped the ball and did not get listener feedback out for you guys. But I have an excuse because I was on vacation and I did not, I almost didn't get this episode recorded at all. So I'm sorry, guys. Next week, I will try to be better. I should be back on a more regular schedule. So um, look for the listener thread for 311 Uncharted because I'm sure you guys will have plenty to say about that. That episode tends to be rife with listener comments. I've had many a conversation about 311. So look out for that thread, and I will try to get that up within the next couple of days. On the Outlander front, we got a behind-the-scenes clip released um, last Friday, so almost a week ago, and... It looks really good. There were tons of little Easter eggs in there, lots of iconic scenes that we caught glimpses of. So I'm actually really, really, really excited about that. No word on a release date yet. I'm hoping we will get one of those in the next month or two, along with a teaser trailer, but that may be (laughs) maybe hoping for a little much. But it looks like the actors have been cleared to share stuff. We've got um, some stuff from John Bell and Sophie Skelton that have been released. And then Sam and Katrina have finally been releasing some selfies and videos from set and stuff like that. So it looks like they're on hiatus right now, um, which probably it means that they are getting ready to start block three, which wouldn't surprise me. They had today off because it's Good Friday. And then um, starting next week, they will probably start filming block three, which is if they're doing it in order means that they will be filming 
episodes five and six. So that's exciting. Can't wait for that. Also on the Outlander Universe front, Diana officially announced that she is done writing book nine, Go Tell the Bees That I'm Gone. However, that doesn't really mean deadly squat, guys, because it all it really means is that she's done with her cut of things and has sent it to her editor and it's got to go through the whole editing process, the whole formatting process, the whole book design process. So we're probably still looking at a solid three to six months before we get our hands on book nine. So I'm not really in too much of a hurry to complete my reread. I'm almost done with book two, Dragonfly and Amber right now. And I'm really excited to get done with that. But then I think I'm going to go back to my other series that I was reading for a couple of books. My whole theory being that, okay, so you're going to rush through all eight books of the Outlander series read book nine, and then what, Chelsea? You're going to have five more years of waiting. So why are we in a hurry? Um, Not that I'm not excited to get the next chapter in the book, because there were a lot of storylines that were left open in book eight that I can't wait to get the resolution to in book nine. But I just feel like patience is a virtue, and I need to slow my roll a little bit and actually enjoy this series, because I really do love reading it. Diana's books are kind of a work of art. So... Um, yeah, I'm just taking my time, enjoying those, excited that we do have a little bit of news on the book front because it's been a long time. Uh, Written in My Own Heart's Blood came out in 2014. So <laughs> yes, like seven years at this point, like holy crap, that's a long time. So slowly but surely news is rolling in and as it drops, I will continue to share it with you guys. As always, if you have any questions about this episode or any other episodes of the Sassanac Files, please make sure to send an email to thesassanacfiles at gmail.com or reach out to me via social media on either Facebook or Instagram, and I would be happy to chat a little Outlander with you. Next week, we're talking 311 Uncharted, and it is super interesting. Super interesting, guys, but I'll save my commentary until next week on that, so... Until then, stay safe out there, and I will chat at you later. Bye!